All right. So now what he's going to do in verse 14 is he's going to use a personal illustration to explain what he just said in verse 13. And in verse four, the passage starting in verse 14 is one of those famous passages of the New Testament. It's one of those debated passages about the New Testament, right? It's the, um, Paul's not doing what he wants to do and he's doing the very thing he doesn't want to do. And what gets debated so much is what? What's the debate in this passage? Whether it was pre, uh, before his conversion or after That's right. Was Paul saved? Was he not saved? One commentator says he's in between salvation. So he's not saved and he's not unsaved, which I didn't know it was possible. <laughs> uh, and it's, it's not, by the way. But, but that's, the, that's the level of confusion here. And, and I think we get confused over a couple, couple verses that to me I think are pretty straightforward if you kind of break it down. So think of the context of the verse or the passage here. What's Paul trying to address in this chapter? The believer's relationship to the law. Right? That's important. It's the believer's relationship to the law. He's not trying to address the unbeliever's relationship to the law. Now, he mentioned the unbeliever briefly. Remember what he said in verse 5? For while we were still in the flesh. So in there, it was talking about the unbeliever. But verse 6, he went back to salvation. But now, now that we're apart from the law, so he's been trying to address this relationship the believer has with the law. So why would he then go back to now talking about him before he was saved? I think one of the biggest problems we have is to come to terms with the fact that Paul actually struggled. That Paul struggled with sin. Because he's the great Apostle Paul, right? Well, the reality is, he's also a man. Just like you and I. He's a person. And only Jesus was perfect, not Paul. Paul didn't live this Christian life perfectly after he was saved. He was like you and I. He made mistakes. He struggled at times. And so it's almost like what he's doing for us is he's sharing a bit of his journal for us in order for us to help why we as believers are not to live under the law. And as we go through it, I think it will become clear as to why I think that is the case. But let's start in verse 14. And verse 14 is one that one phrase here is why people say, well, no, it was before he was saved. And, and we'll explain that one. So verse 14, for, for we know the law is spiritual. The law is holy, it's good, it's of God. But I am of the flesh, sold into bondage to sin. It's that phrase here, in bondage to sin. That's what, well, when were we in bondage to sin? When were we slaves to sin? Before salvation. So that's why people say, well, see, here's Paul talking about before he was saved. He was in bondage to sin. But I don't think that's what he's referring to here. And it, it would disagree with the rest of the passage. But let me explain what he means by the bondage to sin. Go back for a moment in Romans chapter 6. And in verse... Um, well, verse 16. And in verse 16 he says, Do you not know that when you present yourself as, someone, as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or obedience resulting in righteousness. The reality is, you and I, we can place ourselves under the, the dominion or under the authority of anyone we want at any point in time. And so, what's happened is, he has sold himself into bondage and to sin. Think about it. Were we actually sold as slaves to sin? No, we were born that way. 
It wasn't a matter of sold or being sold into it. What he's talking about is there is a transaction where I put myself under its authority. And whoever you obey, you become under their authority. Even though they may not have any real authority over you, they do. You place themselves in it. Think of it this way. I, I, I think of, um, you know, you watch movies, and particularly um, either mafia movies or maybe even just uh, movies where there's the good guy and the bad guy. And the good guy, or the bad guy, tends to be more of the, the you know, the cerebral villain, sort of, you know, the, the master thief or the master um, guy who's planned everything. So he's the brains of the operation. And then what does he have? He's got the goons, right? The thugs. And, you know, because there's movies, right? How does the, the brain, the villain, treat the goons? Like dirt. like dirt, right? He calls them names, he talks down to them. And I always think, why doesn't they, why don't they just kill them? I mean, they're right there. Just one bump on the head or just shoot them or something. I mean, why are you putting up with all this? Because you have all the power. You're the big guy. Why aren't you doing something about it? Well, here's why. They have put themselves under his authority. They have sold themselves into bondage to this guy. So whatever he says, they're going to do. Do they have to do it? No. But they have placed themselves under his bondage. Because you and I can place ourselves under the bondage of anything. Here's a ridiculous illustration. If you wanted to, you could say, you know what? I'm going to sit on this chair and not move until the light tells me to get up. It's silly, right? But you can do that. You're free to sit here until the light tells you to get up. (laughs) Flash, come on, SOS, right? Do something, get up. I mean, it's ridiculous, but you you have that freedom to do that. You can put yourself under the bondage of anything. And what Paul's saying here is, I chose... Remember, he's, he's continuing on where he just left off with, but they're not coveting. And when he said, when he put himself under law, he sold himself back into bondage to sin. Now, is he stuck there? No. He can get out. There's a way out for him. He just maybe hasn't discovered how it is to get out yet. But... That's not referring to pre-salvation. That's referring to this idea of living under the law as a Christian. Does that make sense? Yeah. So if I choose to try and fix a problem, and I'm actually stepping outside of grace and picking up the law again and trying to fix that problem by the law. Depends. Is that what Paul is saying? Depends. Why are you trying to fix the problem? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm just saying. Yeah, if if your if your motive is just you know, I I really want to stop hitting people because you know they don't like hit, being hit, so I'm going to stop hitting people. That's fine, but if it's I want to stop hitting people so they love me, or I want to stop hitting people so I feel better about me, or I want to stop hitting people so God loves me, well now I'm under law. See, it isn't so much the command as much as what am I hoping to get out of it. And that law, remember, it's this law is a system of curses and blessings. Am I avoiding a curse? Am I trying to get a blessing? That's the problem with the law. If it's just a desire, I just want to stop hitting people, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with that. Just like there's nothing wrong with not coveting. But Paul was thinking, if I don't covet, I'm going to get life out of it. Maybe God will be more pleased with me. 
Maybe I'll have a bigger ministry. Maybe I'll be happier. Maybe I'll be more successful in life. So he he had that command and sin deceived him thinking this was how, how you can find more life. Okay, so let's keep going, because I think from here on in, you're going to begin to see that clearly Paul can't be talking about a non-Christian. It wouldn't add up. And I'll point those out as we go. So verse 15, he says, For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I, I am not practicing what I like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I don't want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. I mean, the old King James is really good for here, Right? I not doeth what I want to doeth, so I doeth the very thing I don't want to doeth. And it's just extra confusion, right? But um, look what he's saying. I don't understand. <laughs> I'm confused. I thought the coveting would go down, but the coveting's gone up, right? I'm not practicing what I want to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. Think about an unbeliever. Would an unbeliever really hate it? No. This is what, you know, it's amazing. You talk about to an unbeliever about their sin and they don't, they don't hate it. I mean, they might not like it because they don't like the consequences of it, but the sin itself doesn't really bother them. So he's saying, I'm doing what I hate and I'm not doing what I want to do. But I do the very thing I don't want to do. What's his heart's desire? To do the right thing. Does that sound like the heart of an unbeliever? No. Does that sound like the heart of a believer? Yeah. Absolutely. So I want to do what's good. I, I agree with the law. Confessing the law is good. What he's saying is, I agree the law is, is holy. I agree don't covening is right. That's what I wanted to do. But the problem is, I wasn't not coveting. Instead, I was coveting. I had every kind of covetous desire. So he's going to come make a conclusion now in verse 17. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Well, that's interesting as well. No longer. What does no longer imply? They used to. At some point in time this was true, but now it's what? Not true, right? So no longer am I the one doing it. So at one point in time, it was me, but now it's not. What does that imply? A change. How to be salvation. Now we're going to explain in a minute what he means by that uh, in, a, in a couple verses. <clears throat> but I want you to see here this idea that no longer, it points to the fact that at one point it was, when I was a slave to sin, when I was, when I was an unbeliever, but now I'm not, things have changed. Verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. Well, that could that sound like a believer, an, uh, an unbeliever? Yeah, it doesn't really sound like a believer who's righteous. But then he clarifies it, just so we're, that's in my flesh. He's not talking about him as a spiritual being, but more of in my flesh, that there's nothing good in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. Again, what's his desire? To do good. What's he coming to the conclusion? But I can't pull it off. Right? The problem isn't in the, the command. The problem's where? In me. I don't have the ability to pull it off. I can't make it happen. Verse 19. For the good that I want, 
I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I don't want to do. He's kind of repeating himself here, isn't he? Right? I think he's trying to make a point. And here's the point. The, the key thing is in verse... Um, well, let's keep... Verse 20. But if I'm doing the very thing I don't want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Well, that sounds a lot like verse 17. Right? Verse 17. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Verse 20. But if I'm the one doing... If I'm doing the very thing I don't want... I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Very similar verses, just three verses apart. Now, as parents, have you ever had to repeat yourself to your kids? Why? Why do you repeat yourself to your kids? Make sure they get it, right? So if there's something important, you're going to say it over and over again. Because you want to make sure they heard you. So if there's something really, really crucial, real vital piece of information, you'll repeat yourself. In fact, you'll say it again and again and again. You'll say it many different ways. If there's something important, you'll repeat it. And if it's really important, you'll repeat it lots. And you'll say lots of what you want to repeat. Do I make my point? (laughs) Right? There's something important that Paul's trying to say here. Something that God's trying to say here. The alternative is then they got a stuttering problem together. And that's not the case. So they're trying to get their point across. Well, what's so important in verse 17 and verse 20? Let's look at verse 20. If I'm doing the very thing I don't want, so my desire is to do good, but I'm not. I'm sinning. I am no longer the one doing it. But sin it dwells in me. Is it sort of Paul kind of... You know, getting rid of responsibility. Is he kind of just sloughing off? It's not really my fault. You know, Hezekiah, the other day when I punched you in the face, it wasn't me. I don't know who it was, but it wasn't me. Is that what he's doing? It'd be nice, right? I love that, that excuse. But I don't think that's what he's doing. He's not shirking the responsibility of the sin. Because he says, I'm the one doing it still. Right? What he's saying, I am no longer the one doing it, is what he's really saying is, I'm no longer the source of it. Instead, it's this thing called sin which dwells in me. Now, we're going to take some moment here to really define sin because, you know, this word sin in Romans 5 to 8 has been popping up a number of times. And if you were to count the number of times it shows up in Romans 5 to 8, it shows up 41 times. How many? 41. Out of that, 41 times, 40 of them is a noun. What's a noun? A person, place, or thing. We've been brainwashed. That's been drilled into our heads right from, from grade school, right? It's a person, place, or thing. Opposed to a verb. What's a verb? Action word. Just drilled in there. Programming, right? We're just regurgitating information at this point. God bless the school system, Sue. So, so that's this idea, the noun and the verb, right? 40 of the 41 times sin is mentioned in Romans 5 to 8, he's not talking about the action of sin. He's talking about this thing called sin. Now, sin's not a person. Sin's not a place. So what does that leave? A thing or they've added to it. What's the added thing? What's, they've added it. It's new. An idea. That's really what sin is. 
an idea. It's a thing. Now, what's what Paul's doing here, I think, to help us with this, is he's almost giving it this characteristic, this personification of it, so we can understand it. Here, here is, I think, verse 21 gives us the best biblical definition of what sin is. It is a principle of evil present in me, but not me. Right? That's what he said in verse 21. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. What's his heart's desire? Does that sound like an unbeliever? Does that sound like someone who's unrighteous? That sounds like someone who's righteous, someone who's pure. And the reality is, you as a Christian, you never want to sin. You do, but it's not what you want to do. At this point, people say, oh no, (laughs) you weren't there. You know, when, when they say, I wanted to, I, I did, I wanted to sin. Well, no, you didn't actually want to do that. How do I know? How did you feel afterwards? I mean, if you really wanted to sin, then afterwards you would feel pretty good about it. Right? You'd go around bragging. Man, I got so drunk. Or I, I went and I did all these drugs and I had all these parties and I slept with all these people and I, and I listened to all this country music. and <laughs> You know, you'd be, you'd be proud of your sin. But as, an, as a believer, we're not proud of it. We feel guilty about it. And what, that guilt is good because what it's doing is it's exposing your true desires. Yes? What if, you know, you have a believer who... Um, I would say what ends up happening is you get numb to the cry, to the to the conviction of the Holy Spirit when you live in sin long enough. And you know, I, I often think in my life, those times in my life where that happened to me, at the beginning, I felt the most guilt and and just miserable about it. And then it just it just numbed itself. It wasn't that God's voice got quieter. It's just that I I just started plugging my ears more and more. And so I can't hear from Him as much. And that's probably it. So in that case, I'd probably ask them, you know, the first few times you did it, how did you feel afterwards? And and that's typically, well, it just didn't feel right at the time. But, I, you know, over time, it, I got used to it. And that's probably what you're, what you're experiencing at that point. But the desire of Christians is to do good. That's always your desire. But what's happening is there's something in me, this thing that's evil, and it's present in me, but it's not me. When I heard this, that I have something called sin, uh, later he's going to call it the law of sin, this principle of sin, or this, this force of sin that dwells in my body, that's in me but not me. At that moment, I can now begin to accept the truth that I'm righteous. Because before, it was always, well, if I'm righteous, if I'm pure, if I'm clean, then why do I even have the desire to sin? And the reality is, I have the desire because I still have something in me, but it's not me. And it's caused me all kinds of problems. Um, 
Think of it this way. What's the last thing every surgeon does before he sews up his patient? Regardless of the surgery, the last thing every surgeon does before they sew them, or now staple them, I guess. Count their instruments. Count their instruments, right? Why do they count their instruments and their cloths and so forth? Yeah, that's right. Do you think they learn the lesson the hard way? I think, like most things, they learn it the hard way. Well, suppose I'm the guy they learn that on, right? So they take my appendix out, my appendix is removed, but the doctor forgot a clamp inside of me. Well, what's going to happen? What's that clamp going to begin to do? It's going to fester, right? It's going to cause all kinds of problems. It's going to begin to swell and become really tender, really sore. And so, you know, when I kind of bend over, it begins to jab me, which causes even more pain. And it just doesn't look right. So I go see my doctor and I say, Doc, something, something's not right. Something's wrong. And, and he kind of looks and, and I'm like, this, this, does this look normal to you? And he says, no, that doesn't look normal. And he kind of pokes it, which causes a lot of pain. So I punch him and he gets back up off the ground and says, okay, that's not normal. Um, let's, let's check it out. So I go for an x-ray. And he comes back and he says, I got good news for you. And I said, what's the good news? He says, well, I found my clamp. <laughs> the bad news is it's still inside of you. Now, is the clamp me? But is it causing me problems? It's causing me lots of problems. And that's what sin is. It's not who I am. It doesn't belong to me. However, it does reside in me. In my body. And it's that is the source of the sin. That's what's coming after me. That's what's tempting me. It's not the devil out there. I mean, yeah, the devil's going to come and he's going to harass you and do his thing. But our biggest enemy is with this thing called sin. That's the battle we're facing. And it's, so it's not something out there, but it's something that's going on internally. Uh, ever heard of Vines Concordance or Vines Dictionary? Uh, <clears throat> w. E. Vine he he put together uh, a dictionary of different biblical terms, and look how he defined indwelling sin. He says it's a principle or source of action or an inward element producing acts. That's interesting. This idea that it's this principle, it's this force, this source, and it's trying to produce these acts specifically sinful acts. He also goes on to say it's a governing power or a principle in Romans 6.6 6 called the body of sin. Remember we talked about that? That this body of sin, this indwelling sin was rendered powerless because we died. Right? So here sin is spoken of as an organized power acting through the members of the body though the seed of sin is in the will. Now I disagree with that one. I don't think the seed of sin is in the will. I don't think it resides in the will. I think Paul's going to tell us in a few verses that it resides in our mortal body. So I disagree with the vine there. But it's true, the body then becomes its organic instrument. In the next clause, in another passage as follows, this governing principle is personified. Remember I said 40 of the 41 times sin's a noun. And, and you think about it, Paul's almost giving sin this personality. Because it's doing things, right? Think about in, uh, in Romans 6 and verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign. So it's doing something. It's reigning over us. Do not let sin reign that you would obey. What's the next two words? It's lust. It's 
desires. Whose desires? Sin's desires. See, you're not the source of the desires that are sinful. The source of sinful desires is sin. So don't let it rain that you'd obey it's not yours, it's. So here he's got this personification and it has desires. In in Romans 7, we talk about, you know, he's been talking about how sin deceived him. How sin took the opportunity through the commandment. How sin put him to death. How, you know, in, in back in Romans 6 and verse 13, how you present yourself to sin, you become an instrument of sin. Conversely, you can present yourself to God and become an instrument of righteousness. So, He's giving sin almost a personality, almost a characteristic. I think He's doing this so we can understand it. It's, it's giving us an idea. It's something tangible. Because the reality is sin isn't tangible. It's not like we can go in and you know, perform surgery and do a sin apodectomy or something like that. You know, It just doesn't work that way. It'd be great, but it doesn't happen that way. So what I think He's trying to do is to help us, He's giving us this character of sin. A way to understand it, to reason it. Does that make sense? It's like in a story, like an allegory, you have a character who represents something. Well, that's what Paul's doing here. He's created this character called sin. Now, it's not creating the character of sin. He's, he's giving character to sin so that we can relate to it, so that we can understand it. You follow? So let's look at some characteristics of indwelling sin. And I think this is in your notes already. The first thing is, it's going to feel like you. It's going to pretend to be you. See, what's the greatest way to get you to do what I want you to do? For example, suppose I wanted to sell my van to you. What's the one way to guarantee not only will you buy my van, but you'll buy it for more than it's worth? How can I sell you my van for more than it's worth? You still might not buy it then. Because I love Ferraris, but I'm not buying Ferraris. Make you think it was your idea. Yeah. See, I can lie, I can dress it up, I can you know, do all kinds of things, but you might not buy it. But if you think it's your idea to buy it, then when you come knocking on my door, I can turn you down. So I really like my van. You know, I, I'm not looking to sell it. You'll raise the price. I'll turn you down again. You'll raise the price again. Okay, I'll buy it. I'll I'll help you out by selling it to you. When all the while it was me who somehow convinced you that it was your idea. That's what sin's trying to do. It's trying to be you, pretend to be you, in order to convince you that it's your idea to do it in the first place. And I saw this really powerful in the movie, uh, My Big Fat Greek Wedding. How many people remember that movie? Right? Anyone who, who's seen it? We won't judge you. It's okay. You're still loved and accepted. The basic premise of the movie, for those that haven't seen it and are more holy than the rest of us, the basic premise is it's about what? Any guesses? A big fat Greek wedding, right? And, and the main character, her name's Tula. Any guesses on her nationality? Greek, yeah. She works at the family restaurant. Guess what kind of restaurant it is? Greek, yeah. But she really wants to work at, at her aunt's travel agency. Any guesses on the travel agency? There's no such thing as a Greek travel agency. It's just, just a travel agency, okay? Um, 
So she, she wants to work for her aunt, and mom's on board with the idea, but they're worried that dad would never go for it. So mom and aunt say, don't worry, leave it to us, we'll take care of it. So they go into the restaurant, they sit down across from dad, and dad's working on the books, and, and mom and aunt start talking. Oh, how's that? How's things going at the agency? Oh, good, but we're swamped. Oh, we're so busy. If only we had someone like Tula to come to help. If Tula were here, that would be really wonderful. And I could send you my boy and you could send us Tula. That would be really wonderful. I don't know what we're going to do though. At which point Papa pops up and says, I know. Why don't we send you Tula? You send us your boy. We trade. Everyone's happy. And mom and aunt are like, oh, you're so smart. Where did you come up with this idea? Oh, you're so brilliant. Oh, you're our savior. How's he feeling? Well, yes, I am. I am feeling pretty good. It was my idea after all. Was it his idea? No. But they convinced him that it's his idea. So guess what he's going to do? He does the idea. And that's what sin's going to do. See, sin knows all about you. It knows everything about you because it's been with you since the beginning of time. It knows your weaknesses. It knows what buttons to push in you. It knows what works and what doesn't work. And so in that moment, it's going to come after you. It knows that you don't like to miss appointments. So when you miss an appointment, guess what sin's doing? Oh, I'm such a failure. Oh, I blew it. Right? It's sounding like me. It's using your accent. It's speaking in personal pronouns. It's not saying you. It's saying I. I. Me. Because so, if it can stay undercover, then I won't see. I won't recognize it. And I'll just think, I'm still that rotten old man. So it's pretending to be you. It's speaking in first person singular. I, me, and myself. So that I just go for it. I just think it's my thought and don't even realize it. You see, the, the reality is, not all thoughts are your thoughts. Have you realized that yet? In fact, most of your thoughts are probably not your thoughts in this world. You are being bombarded with thoughts all the time. You turn on the radio, you turn on the TV, you open the newspaper, you go online, you drive down the road, you see billboards, and you have all kinds of advertising. What are they doing? They're putting thoughts into your head. Yeah, I could go for McDonald's. Yeah, I could go for a beer. Yeah, I could go to Disney World. I could do this, I could do that. They're putting all kinds of thoughts in your head. Right now, I'm putting thoughts in your head. Whether it's sticking or not, it's another story. But I'm trying to put thoughts in your head. So we have all kinds of thoughts coming, bombarding us. The question is what you do with those thoughts. And so sin, it's speaking in first person singer. It's, it sounds like you uses your mind's voice. And it's trying to gain power over you to live with a law mentality. Oh, you blew it here. You better get better. You better improve. I don't know if you're doing good enough. I don't know if you're working hard enough. There's, you, you, better, you better improve. And so I'm under this law mentality wondering, am I doing enough? Am I okay? It knows all your hurts, all your pains, all your rejections, and how we like to deal with them. It knows your flesh. It knows everything about you. And so when you face that hurt, when you face that pain, it knows how to tempt you into doing something. For, for example, 
in my case, I, I, I just don't like alcohol. I don't like to taste alcohol. I don't think it's a sin to drink alcohol. You can drink alcohol. I think the Bible's pretty clear about that. You just don't get drunk on the alcohol. But for me, I, I'd rather my, you know, gasoline be in my car and not in my mouth. That's, that's just a personal present, preference. But if you're free to burn your mouth, that's okay. So when I face something difficult and something painful, sin's not going to say, let's go get drunk. That, that has no appeal to me whatsoever. What it might say, though, is, let's just check out. Let's just turn on that TV and go to our nothing room and avoid the problem. Or let's just go bury it in food and just eat something so you feel better and, and you just ignore the problem. Or maybe if you do nothing, the problem will just take care of itself and it will just go away. Sin knows how I like to procrastinate and how I'm, I'm susceptible to that. It knows my flesh. And so it will appeal to my flesh patterns. Whereas somebody else, it's going to appeal differently. Maybe it's someone else, they get drunk. Or maybe someone else, they think, well, i got to go fix the problem. And that means I'll do whatever I can to fix it and I can't sleep until I fixed it. And so they just go into you know hyperdrive trying to fix the problem. Whatever it is, it knows all about us. It knows the buttons to push. And then it will put the sinful thoughts into our mind and then even condemn you for having it. For example, Ingrid, on the way home tonight, um, what, what I think would be good to, to do is go knock off a liquor store. Because you'll have some more money and then you can you know give the charity. So it would be a good thing. So go rob the liquor store. All right? Would you do that? I can't believe you even thought about doing that. I mean, what kind of a Christian are you to think about robbing a liquor store? For goodness sakes. Really? Now look, what did I just do? I put a thought in her head. Right? Go lock, knock off a liquor store. That's not her flesh pattern, by the way. She prefers convenience stores. But So I, I put the thought in there. She says no. And then what do I do? I beat her up for having it. So what does sin do? It puts that thought. And then I feel bad for even having the thought. Well, why do I feel bad for having the thought? Because sin's telling me how bad I should feel for having the thought. Because if it doesn't get me to do the sin in the first place, it's going to beat me up for even having the thought of the sin. Even though it was the source of that sin. Sneaky kind of fellow, isn't it? That's why it's so important to recognize it. And to realize it. And that's what Paul... That was the great conclusion that Paul came to in Romans 7, verse 14 onward. Wait a minute. No longer am I the one doing it. I'm no longer the source of all this. Instead, it's something else. This other thing that's in me, but it's not me. I'm not actually the source of it. So let's illustrate it here. This is similar to that diagram we looked at last night, but again, here's our indwelling sin, that, that principle of evil in me, and here's the unbeliever. Now, for the unbeliever, this is how it's going to work. The, um, the indwelling sin is going to see something in this world, and that's going to become the object of temptation. It's not the source of temptation, it's just merely the object of that temptation. Right? So sin's coming and it's, you know, we're in bondage to the flesh, we're living under the dominion of flesh, and so the whole being is dominated by sin in the flesh. 
There's no life in our spirit, our souls in bondage to it, in our body as well. And so what's going to happen is I'm going to produce sins and dead works. Sin's going to drop the thoughts into my mind, and because I'm in bondage to it, my will has no choice but to do it. And I sin. Right? Not very pretty, but that's what's happening. Well, let's contrast that now with the believer. And so we have here is the old man has been crucified with Christ, right? The person who was in bondage to sin is dead. He's died to sin. He's died to the law. So sin now has how much control over me? None. Zero. Absolutely no control, right? For he who has died is freed from sin. Not freed from sinning. Not freed from the action of sin. Freed from the noun sin. That's why there's so much confusion in that verse, Romans 6-7. It's not that I'm freed from never sinning, but I'm freed from its power. It has no power over me. So when it comes knocking, it sees that thing in the world, and whether it's the world or Satan, it's going to come knocking, it starts dropping thoughts into my mind. So for example, for me, my background is I like to drive cars. I used to race cars and build race cars. And so for me, driving fast was, was great. It was, it was a way to, to blow off steam. It was a way for thrills and excitement. So when I, when I drove cars, I used to drive really fast. And um, I'll edit this part out but on the recording. But you know, I used to go on on-ramps. I used to see how fast I could go on the on-ramps. You know, if it said 40, it was a yellow recommended sign. So that meant 80 to me. And so you know, that's how it would, would go. So, um, so we'll edit that part out of the recording so I don't get arrested afterwards. But, but, so sin knows that about me. So imagine now I'm driving along the road and I look in my rearview mirror and behind me I see a soccer mom driving a Dodge minivan about two inches from my bumper. Sin, that's the object in the world. That's the minivan. Sin says, aha, I have an opportunity. I can now begin to try to gain some control over us. So it begins to drop thoughts into my mind. Who does she think she is? How dare she get this close to my bumper? Man, I should teach her a lesson. I mean, back off, lady, really. So all these thoughts are coming into my mind. Coming from who? Sin. What's happened to my emotions? They're all getting all riled up. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm agreeing with this. And yeah, who, who is she? I'm getting angry. I'm getting upset. So that when sin does say you should, I should teach her a lesson, I'm, I'm all for it. So now I got a choice. It's at my will now. What am I going to do? Am I going to, you know, brake check? You know what a brake check is? Just tap the brakes. See how quickly she can respond. That'll learn, learn her right. That'll teach her a lesson. Or maybe I just slow really down. You know, it's 70, but I'll go 30. You know, just to really upset her. Or maybe I just step on the gas. I'll teach her how to drive fast if she thinks she's thinking, you know, I'll teach her a lesson. All these thoughts come through my mind and they're all coming from sin. And I got a choice, right? If I go in for it, if I agree with it, what's happened? I've now presented my body to sin as an instrument of unrighteousness. And what happens is now, the flesh infiltrates and begins to impact my soul, and I become that instrument. My body now is sinning. Either brake check, 
or I speed off, I slow down, or maybe I just sit there and I don't do anything, but I grunt and I groan and I, you know, give her the finger and I curse at her inside under my breath. I'm sinning in my soul and my body. Am I the source of it? No, it was sin, but it's now infiltrated me. I'm now that instrument of sin. Notice what's still pure. I'm still righteous. I'm sealed with the Holy Spirit. If sin entered here, what would happen to Jesus? Well, He would become sin as well. So, sin can't come in here. This is like you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is the Holy of Holies. Was there ever sin in the Holy of Holies? No. Not at all. And so, they're Holy of Holies, united with one, one with God. There's no sin there. You're still righteous, but your soul and body have become instruments of unrighteousness. And so what happens? I produce sins, or at best, dead works. That's the grunting and groaning and not doing anything, but I'm just gnashing my teeth inside. Well, what's the alternative? Well, again, same thing. Sin's doing all that, dropping all those thoughts, getting me all worked up, and now i got to make a choice. What choice will I make? Well, then I can remember and I say, wait a minute, I'm dead to sin. I don't have to prove myself by how I drive anymore. I don't get my worth in the fact that I can drive a car fast, at least faster than a soccer mom behind me. And I don't have to teach her any lessons. And not only that, I'm alive to God in Christ Jesus. He loves me just as I am. I'm accepted and approved in Him. So I'm okay. And I can begin to rest in this knowledge and trust in this fact. And instead of trusting in sin and becoming an instrument of the flesh, I can present myself to God and I become an instrument of what? Of righteousness. And now, His life, His Spirit, begins to break forth into my soul. And so, I start hearing His thoughts in my mind. It's okay. It doesn't matter. you got nothing to prove. What happens to my emotions? They begin to calm down. I'm not worried. I'm not trying to, um, you know, speed up, slow down. I'm just driving along and letting her be. And so my body now, because I'm not speeding, I become that instrument of, of righteousness. And so what's happened now is I begin to bear fruit, fruit that God created, that God produced in me, and the good works that go along with it. And now I'm reaping eternal life. Does that make sense? I still got sin in me, but now I'm walking after the Spirit. Does that make sense? That's what he's going to explain here in these following verses. Look, verse 22. Paul says, For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. Again, does that describe an unbeliever? Does the unbeliever joyfully concur with the law of God? No. Not at all. It hates the Word of God. It's against the Word of God. And so, again, Paul is obviously a Christian, obviously a believer at this point, spirit-filled, joyfully concur with the law of God, but I see a different law in the members of my body. Now, lowercase l isn't referring to the Mosaic law, the written code of commandment. Instead, this law is referring to the principle or the force. For example, we have different kinds of laws in our world, right? We have a written code of conduct in terms of the driving. Red light means stop. Green light means go. Yellow light means speed up. 
No. Right? Yellow means proceed with caution, right? That's the written code of conduct. Drive on the right side of the road, not the left side of the road. That sort of thing, right? One-way streets mean one way. That's written out for us. Well, we have that as well. That's the, the Mosaic commandments, the biblical law. It's a written code of conduct. But we have other kinds of laws in this world. For example, what's holding you in your chairs right now? Gravity. Also known as what? The law of gravity. Right? And the law of gravity is saying that it will pull you down. For example, if I let go of this pen, this marker, what's going to happen? It's going to drop, right? How many times will it drop? Every time. That's why it's a law. A law says that something is going to operate based on the same conditions, you're always going to get the same results. So because of gravity, every time I let go of the marker, it pulls down. Now, is gravity a written code of conduct? Does the marker say, well, you know, many years ago, Newton wrote this law out, so now i got to obey it. No, it's a natural law. right? It's a, one of those physical laws of the world. We have all kinds of physical laws. The law of aerodynamics and the law of thermodynamics and so forth. Well, the law of gravity is one of them. We also have spiritual laws. And one of the spiritual laws that Paul's talking about now is this different law, which is the law of sin in his members that's waging war with the law of his mind. So the law of his mind basically says, I want to be the best Christian I can be. I want to honor God. I joyfully concur with the law of God. I don't want to commit adultery. I don't want to murder. I don't want to steal. I want to love. That's the desire of every Christian. If you don't have that desire, then maybe you're not of the faith. That's the bottom line. That's the inner man. That's the law we have. So I have this desire, this law of my mind, but I have this different law, this other principle, this other power or force that's waging war with me, trying to make me a prisoner of it again. And that's what sin's doing. Now, the difference between a prisoner and a slave is a prisoner, if he can ever discover the key, he's set free. So we used to be slaves, so we needed to be crucified. But now, sin will sometimes make us prisoners. Only because we've chosen to do so. But whenever we try to battle sin, whenever we try to, to live according to the law, <coughs> sin will begin master over us again. Sin will control us, will make us his prisoner. So verse 24, Wretched man that I am. This is another verse that people point to to see. Look what an evil, wicked, dirty, rotten sinner Paul's saying he is. Except that's not what Paul's saying. I don't know why they've translated it wretched. I don't know if it goes back just to King James. But you know what wretched means? Wretched simply means miserable. Think about it. Does miserable describe somebody who says, I'm not doing what I want to do, and I'm doing the very thing I don't want to do? It's inner turmoil. It's inner conflict. It's frustration. That's what he's experiencing. Well, yeah. Why wouldn't he be feeling that? Miserable man that I am in this place. Who will set me free from this body of death? 
What's he talking about? What's the body of death? Indwelling sin. Because what does sin always lead to? Death. Right? So this body, this physical body that's got sin in it, because that's where he's placed it, right? This principle, this law of sin, which is in my members, in my body. It's controlling me. So who's going to set me free? I can't. Because every time I try to, all I do is I empower it all the more. It's kind of like one of those Chinese finger locks, right? Every time you pull away, it just gets tighter and tighter and tighter. And every time I try to fight sin with the law, it just gets worse and worse and worse. So who's going to set me free? He's asking the question, but then he answers it in verse 25. And he gives kind of the complete answer, and then he's going to come back to the problem. But he says, but thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So he's the one that's going to rescue me. But now he's going to summarize it. He's going to wrap things up. He says, so then, just so we're clear, on the one hand, I myself with my mind, I'm serving the law of God. I want to do good. This is the deception I had. But what will happen on the other, with my flesh, I'll end up serving the law of sin. That's why the Christian is not to play around with the law. Because when you play around with the law, yeah, you want to do the law with your mind, but what ends up happening is you end up serving with your flesh the law of sin. So I'm just wondering then, if God wants to rescue us, says He does, mm-hmm. why did He even leave this whole indwelling sin there to begin with? Why didn't He just take it? Yeah. Yeah, what, I guess that, you should have done, what, a syndectomy or something like that? It would have been really nice, right? It'd be gone. Yeah, and we're not dealing with all this stuff. That's right. So why on earth would God ever leave sin in our lives? Well, here's the thing. If sin was gone, and one day it will be, right? I mean, he's going to talk about that in chapter 8, about the glorified body that awaits. And when you're glorified, your body's changed, what disappears? sin, which is in your body. So that would be a good day. Don't get me wrong. But the moment that sin is gone, I have no need to trust Jesus anymore. I don't have an enemy anymore. So what ends up happening is he leaves sin there and every time that sin comes, guess who I go running to? Jesus. Jesus. It's kind of like Paul's thorn in the flesh. God, take this thorn in the flesh away. I'd be so much better as a minister. I'd be freer. I'd have less problems. I could do far more. I'd be far more effective for you, God. Remove this thorn in the flesh. Sorry, Paul. My power is sufficient. My grace, or my grace is sufficient. My power is made perfect, not in good times, but in your weakness. So what sin ends up doing is serving God's purposes which is to expose to me how weak I am, how much I need Him, so I go running to Him that I experience life in Him rather than trying to do it on my own. Does it have to do with the, the freedom we have in Christ to worship and honor God with all that we do? Uh, yeah, it gives me a choice. Yeah. Um, although I think without sin, I still have a choice. Uh, but what having it there puts pressure on me. And that pressure drives me to Jesus. Choices to worship, to, to choose for God or against God. Yeah. The same thing as in the garden. Yeah. But the the reality is, sin has no power over me anymore. Every time I sin, it's because I chose to. 
I don't like that part so much. I can't say sin made me or the devil made me do it. No, no. I willingly presented myself to sin in that moment. I blew it. But you know what? I'm still loved. I'm still accepted. I'm still approved. And God's not waiting to punish me or He's not withholding anything from me. He's waiting to welcome me back with open arms at any point in time. If, if it is a choice, then how, how do we just not, or how do we choose not to sin then? Good question. Do you think He's going to answer that? Probably, right? So, let's keep going. And again, if you have questions, please ask them. Chapter 8, verse 1. New chapter, new thought? No. No, not at all. In fact, really, you know, if they really wanted to have a chapter and verse break here, or or a chapter break, they should have waited to the end of verse 4. The first four verses of chapter 8 really connected with what he's talking about in verse uh, in the previous verses. So here he's saying, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who is the one that condemns? What is it that condemns us? It's the law. Right? Because the law is the standard. When you fail to measure up to the standard, that's the law. Well, now, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In Christ, there's no condemnation at all. Period. What's interesting here, the King James Version, they added a phrase. They said there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. They added what's in verse 4. They moved it up and placed it into verse 1. What does that make it sound like? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What happens if you are walking according to the flesh? Well, now you're condemned. It makes it all performance-based. Well, first off, that completely goes against everything Paul's been saying up to this point. And what's interesting is in all the manuscripts that the, that the King James works off of, that phrase is always in verse 4. So it's the translators that moved it up. I wonder if they were afraid. And they thought, oh, you know, if we really tell people there's no condemnation, then they're going to do what? They'll do whatever they want. They'll just go and sin. Well, the reality is true. Because there's no law, you'll do whatever you want. But what is it that you want to do? What have Paul just been saying here? The one I, I want to do good. The good I want to do. That's your desire. That's your heart. We who have died to sin, why would we continue to live in it any longer? So that's the reality. So therefore now, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. doesn't matter what you've done, how many times you've done it. There's no condemnation. Why? For the law of the Spirit and life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. What that means is that there's now a new power, a new force that's been introduced that overcomes this law of sin. So remember I said, as long as I drop this marker, it's going to keep going down. Because the law of gravity is acting on it, pulling it down. Well, what if I change the circumstances? What if I change the event by adding my left hand now to hold the marker? Now when I let go with the right, it doesn't fall anymore. 
I've changed what's going on around it. Well, that's what God's done here. He's introduced a new force, a new power, a new law called the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Simply put, he's added Jesus to the equation. And who is the one that's going to overcome sin now? Jesus does. He's the one that overcomes it. Think of it this way. How many of you have flown in an airplane before? All right, good. So most of you have. So you're flying along 30,000 feet altitude. Uh, you got your tray table down and you had a pen on the tray table and it starts rolling for the edge. It goes over the edge and what happens to the pen? Falls down. Why? Sorry? Hold it up from what? Gravity. But I thought we were flying 30,000 feet in the air. So gravity still works on the plane? Yeah, it does. Right? That's why it falls down. It's not some magical voodoo, right? Gravity's still working on the plane. So why is... Now, first off, is gravity the plane? No, but it's, it's acting on the plane. Why is it then that that plane is able to fly? The law of aerodynamics, Right? Which basically says that if I can get enough wind to pass over the wing, it will produce something called lifts, which will lift you up. Engineers are very uncreative, right? So it's, just, it's lift. That's all it is, right? So this lift causes you to go up. And what happens is if you get enough wind, enough power from aerodynamics, it will overcome the gravity pulling the plane down. So what they have on these planes is these engines, which produce enough thrust to get enough wind to go over the wings so that the plane is able to fly. So gravity is always working. There just happens to be a greater force called aerodynamics, which sets the plane free from it. Does that make sense? Well, could I not say then that the law of aerodynamics has, has set... The plane free from the law of gravity. Right? That's all Paul's saying here. Is that there's a new power, a new force, which is greater than gravity, greater than sin, that's allowing you to fly. Now picture this though. Pilot, 30,000 feet in the air, thinks to himself, you know what? We're doing pretty good. I think we can just shut the engines off and take it from here on our own. What's going to happen to that plane? It's going to go, right? It's going to crash. Why? You don't need a black box for this. The problem of all crashes is gravity takes over. Right? What happened? The plane stopped trusting in aerodynamics, or the power of it, and began trusting in itself, at which point gravity overtook it. Well, the moment you and I stopped trusting in the life of Christ, the law of sin, which like gravity is a downer, will take control of you. But just like how gravity is not the plane, sin is not you. It's present in you, and it's causing you all kinds of problems, but it's not who you are. And you don't have to listen to it anymore. You don't have to let it rain. You're the one that gets to make that choice. Who will you present yourselves to? Who will you trust in? Trust in the sin, become an instrument of sin, and the death that comes with that? Or do you trust in Jesus, in His power and His strength?
Now he's going to explain it. Verse 3. For what the law could not do. We've talked about it briefly already this morning. What was essentially the law trying to get me to do? That was the standard, but what was it trying to get me to do? What was the? How did Jesus summarize the law? Two commandments, one word would be love, right? I mean, that's really what the whole commandments are boiled down to, love. Because if you kill them, they don't feel loved. If you lie, they don't feel loved, right? If you you know reject God, have other idols, He's not loved. So that's essentially what the commandments are trying to say, love. Love God, love others. Well, <clears throat> the law couldn't make me love. Why? Is there a problem with the law? No. Weak as it was through the flesh. The problem's you and I. Think of it, think of it this way. We have the Olympics going on right now. And you know, one of my favorite events, and I didn't get to see it this year, but is aerials. Anyone get to see the aerials? You know, you know what the aerials are? The they start on they do ski aerials. So they you know they're on the skis. They have poles. I, I don't know why they have poles because they don't need them. And you basically just go down the hill, and then there's a ramp, and you go up in the ramp, and then it's like diving now. Right? They're doing their twists and their turns and their tucks and their triple sow cows and all kinds of things. And, and then, you know, they land right on their skis. And it's just incredible to watch them go. Because they, they they're flying up there and then doing all kinds of, like, eight different things before they land. And what's great is the Canadians are actually good in it. So we have a chance of winning stuff. Right? Well, imagine we break down the gold medal winning jump. The one that wins it for us. And you break it down frame by frame to see all the tricks and turns and tucks and flips and sow cows and such they do. And we make a list. And we write it down, okay, they tuck and they turn and they hold and do this. We have a list of all, we break it down and now I hand you that list and say, now go do it. I want you to go and perform the same jump as good as the Olympic gold medalist did. Who can do it? Any volunteers? I'll give you time to practice. Any volunteers? I have, a, I have a few people who say at this point, I could do it. Really? You could do it as good as the gold medal winning jumper? Then why are you not in the Olympics? The reality is, we can't. Why not? Why can't we do it as good as the gold medal winning jumper did? What are we lacking? No, I'll give you all the training in the world. You still won't be able to pull it off. Why? What are we missing? A little thing called skill. Ability. We simply just don't have what it takes. Right? That's what Paul's saying. The law tells you what to do. You can't do it. Why? Nothing wrong with the law. Nothing wrong with the instructions. The problem's you. You, within yourself, do not have the ability and the strength to pull it off. So guess what? God does it. God overcame sin. How? By sending His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. He condemned sin that's in your body. Now notice, Romans 8.1 says there's no condemnation for who? You and I. Verse 3 says he condemns sin. What does that mean sin is not? 
it must not be you. Because if he's not condemning you in verse 1 and he's condemning sin in verse 3, then sin must be someone else. That thing in you, that source that's tempting you, is not you. He overcame it. He defeated it. That sin no longer has dominion and authority over you and I over Him. Why did He do that? Verse 4. Here's the purpose. So that the requirement of the law. What's the requirement of the law? That we would love. Might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Right? So that as we trust in Him, as we walk with Him, the requirement, the life of Christ, would be manifest through us, so the requirement of loving people is accomplished. And here's where, this is where the King James, they lifted it from, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Meaning, when we're walking according to the flesh, will we love people? No, not at all. But when we're walking according to the Spirit, trusting in His power, He's living through us. And guess what? I'm not committing adultery. I'm not stealing. I'm not lying. Is it because I have that moral code telling me what to do? No. It's because I've got Jesus. I don't follow a law. I trust in a person who lives now inside of me who gives me the power to do what I can never do before. (coughs) Do you see why we don't need the law anymore for Christians? Still great for the unbeliever. Tells them what sin is. And they don't like that, right? I I mean, look at our world. Our world right now, especially, is calling evil good and good evil. You know... Who cares about marriage and, and uh, monogamy within marriage and homosexuality and, and ste- stealing and lying and cheating? Big deal. No problems with that. Because it's against the law. But we need the law to say, hey, look how far off you are. If you think that's good, but it's not, that must mean there's a problem. And so it's exposing sin. It's magnifying sin, making it even more sinful to drive them to Jesus, that they'd find life in Him. But now that you got Jesus, we don't need the law anymore. So remember the question He's answering here. It goes all the way back to Romans 6, verse 15. Should we continue in sin now that we're not under law but under grace? No. Far from it. Far from it. We're free from sin. And we're free from the law. You're now free to love. Isn't that great? Sometimes I think we just focus on what we've been freed from and don't realize what we've been freed to. Yeah, I'm I'm freed from the law. Yeah, but you're freed to grace. You're freed from having to go to church and now you're free to go to church. You're freed from having to read your Bible to have God impressed with you to now free to read your Bible just to get to know Him. You're freed from stealing or to be free to give. Free to help other people. We've been free to all kinds of things. And so use your freedom, not as an opportunity for your flesh, it says in Galatians, but for an opportunity to serve one another, to love one another. That's what we want to do.
Yes. So if you're walking after the flesh, is that like being a carnal Christian? Um, yeah. There's there, some people debate whether a carnal Christian even exists or not, um, and I think there is such thing as a carnal Christian. But it's not that you're in that moment you become carnal, or in that next moment you're spiritual. The the carnal Christian is being lifted out of 1 Corinthians three. That's the idea from it, where Paul was saying that I couldn't speak to a spiritual man, but I had to speak to you as babes in Christ, as carnal people, or fleshly is the better translation. Because you're walking as mere men. So a carnal Christian I would describe as someone who um, more often than not is walking after their flesh. So it's not an in this moment thing. It's more of a take a step back and, and kind of take a, a sense of their life. And they're walking after the flesh far more than they are walking after the spirit. Now, just so we're clear, how righteous is a carnal Christian? Well, if they're, if they're a Christian... But walking after the flesh, how righteous are they? Perfectly righteous. But they don't know it or they're not trusting in it. And so they're more often not walking out of their own flesh. Whereas the spiritual Christian is more often not walking after the spirit. Now, both will find times, the carnal Christian will at times walk after the spirit. And the spiritual Christian will at times walk after his flesh. But the, the difference between that carnal Christian and the spiritual would be more of a, um, what is the dominating factor in their life at that moment and at that time. But hopefully that carnal Christian grows up and matures and can begin to walk more and more after the Spirit. But it doesn't change his approval. God doesn't love him any more or any less. But he can begin to experience more life. And those around him will benefit as well.